Hey guys, I'm so glad you're joining us. Grab a Bible, Luke chapter one. I hope your Thanksgiving was wonderful, but we're racing into Christmas and we're gonna begin our Christmas conversation. And I wanna look at a passage of scripture, Luke chapter one, that you've probably heard this time of year. Here's what it says. It says, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin, pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. Virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. So Mary was troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this was. But the angel said to her, Don't be afraid, Mary. You found favor with God. You'll conceive, give birth to a son, and you're to call him Jesus. Verse 32, He'll be great. He'll be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he'll reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. She says, how will this be since I'm a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age and she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. You guys pray with me. Father, I just want to say we love you. We're so grateful that you love us, and Christmas just reminds us of that. Today, we long to hear from you, and we pray that we'll be good listeners. Challenge us and change us as you see fit. We trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, almost 28 days till Christmas. Are you ready? Yeah. Depending on when you're watching this, I guess, uh, 28 days, maybe less than that. I have some fond, uh, some weird memories of Christmas, fond memories of my mom baking cookies and decorations and the lights, the trees, the gifts, all that kind of stuff. Great memories of that. Um, we had some interesting things growing up. We had this lady who was a friend of ours. Uh, she would every year bring a fruitcake. It was in a tin. It was awful, right? Like, I don't know where they get these things. It had these green cherries in it and all that kind of, like, I remember us as kids were like, you know, but we had a thank you, you know. Um, we had a family tradition. I don't know. You probably did too, that on Christmas Eve at our house, uh, what we ate every Christmas Eve was oyster stew. <laughs> did you do that? Like... Yeah, I don't meet many families that did that. I'm not sure where we picked that up. I'm glad to report that that tradition died with my father's generation. Like, we don't continue that today. Um, every Christmas morning, we'd get up, and my dad would read the Christmas story before we could dig into gifts. I was convinced as a kid my father was the slowest reader who ever lived. It felt like it took him forever to get through that thing. I remember one year he read the genealogy. I'm like, what are you doing? He begat him. Like, we got gifts to open. Uh, but the, the, the tradition that I remember, kind of stands out to me, was every Christmas season, we would go Christmas caroling. Uh, as a church, we'd pile into this big yellow bus. We'd travel from nursing home to nursing home, go to old folks' homes, uh, uh, older couples' homes, and we'd sing Christmas carols. Everyone we could think of, joy to the world, first know, hark the old angels sing. We'd just sing them, silent night. And most of them by memory. We'd just sing them. We'd have books or we'd have papers that we could sing the words from. And I remember thinking as a little kid, man, I am glad we're going to some old folks' home and that they're hard of hearing because we're not that good. <laughs> I 
thought to myself, uh, I can remember we'd sing those things. And as a little kid, I would just sing them and I would just sing what I heard. And there's some of the words of that that get confusing. For the longest time, uh, I thought Mary was a young, round virgin. <laughs> and so, right. And so you sing these words and like, I don't know what I'm singing. But there's one song in particular my mom really liked. She was a soprano. And so it made sense that she liked it because there's a part in it that kind of like goes very high. And it, the song went like this. Oh, holy night. You ever heard it? The stars are brightly shining. It is the night of the dear Savior's birth. Listen to this. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope. The weary world rejoices. I need to tell you something. As a kid, I, I sang that, we sang that, and it didn't compute with me. I mean, weary, a weary world. Like, as a kid, I was probably weary. Like, I was weary of school. I was probably weary of my brother and sister. I was, I was probably weary of the chores my dad wanted me to do every day. Uh, I was weary waiting for Christmas. But a weary world, it really didn't compute as a kid. I would suggest that weary becomes something that we are more familiar with with age. Amen? You agree with that? Some of you older? Yeah? Like, like this idea of a weary world. Because as we go into this Christmas season, can we just agree on this just so we can have this conversation? That our world's kind of weary. Uh, you look at the global stage and it's like we live in this weary world. A world that is weary with the headlines. A world that's weary with dictators and autocrats and tyrants. A, a world that's weary of the geopolitical crisis that seems to happen all over the place, the threat of nuclear war, economic pressure, uh, Bitcoin billionaires claiming bankruptcy, stock markets crashing, uh, the, the hints of recession, gas prices, like we're weary. A weary world that's weary with social issues that never seem to disappear in a social media that just seems to always interfere. Like weary. We live in a weary world. Uh, we're weary with politicians who overpromise and underdeliver. But we're weary in our own world. Some of us, some of you, are weary just with the routine of your life, the humdrum. It's become weary to you. Uh, in your own world, some of you are weary because of personal disappointments that you did not plan for this year. Some of you are weary with religious disillusionment that's hijacked your faith this year. Some of you are weary because you've had sickness and physical issues that can't ever seem to get resolved. You got relationship and tensions that never get fixed. You're weary. We live in this weary world and the idea of being weary is something that grows more familiar with age and we're longing for this thrill of hope. Did you know something? Did you know something? That the very first Christmas landed in the middle of a weary world? It was a world that was weary much like our world is weary minus the Facebook, Twitter, and Bitcoin, right? It was weary. And they had religious disillusionment. They had financial unrest, political crisis, social inequality. They had all the same things. And it was into their weary world. And it's into your weary world. And it's into our weary world that God sent the first Christmas postcard. And his carrier was an angel. And here's what he said. He said this. You'll conceive and give birth to a son, and you're to call him Jesus. 
he'll be great. He'll be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he'll reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Listen, for us, that sounds like a Christmas card greeting. Like, that's what you put on the Christmas card. Like, it's sentimental, it's cute, it's quaint, it's Christmassy. But for them, for them, it would have landed much differently. It would have cut into their weary, politically volatile and power-hungry world. This would have cut into it like a campaign ad. You see, the message, this message, this message sent by that angel was sent to an obscure peasant gal who just seemed to be like an extra or a pawn in the drama of power plays and geopolitical volatility of their day. You see, here's the deal. They already had a king. There was somebody already on the throne. Somebody was already in control. In fact, Mary, the one that this message came to, their world was weary, and her people, they had been pinballs and pawns in the power struggle that played out on the global stage for years. You see, Mary's people, their history was checkered with a weary narrative. Did you know that? Like they belly ached for a king, so God gave them a king. But the, the, the idea of being so power hungry and wanting control led that kingdom to divide, and it became two kingdoms. And those kingdoms became vulnerable to p kingdoms and empires that were power hungry, that overtook those kingdoms, namely Assyria, Babylon, Persia, till eventually the mighty Romans displaced them, take over. They're running the show at the time of the first Christmas. The guy on the throne, Caesar. Caesar Augustus, to be specific. Caesar Augustus, with his reign, ended the longest and bloodiest civil war in the Rome, Roman Empire history. He brought a great time of peace. His time he brought in was something called the Pax Romana. He was very much seen as somebody who had, he was a guy who brought results. And so as a result, the many people thought that when he was born, that a God was born. And even he himself thought of himself that way. You see, when this king, he came into that world, you need to know something into the story, into the story, that first Christmas, of the king that thought he was a God, God announced he was coming as a man that would be the king. You need to know this, that the Son of the Most High is in the womb of the most lowly of peasant gals from a minority refugee group. You need to know that the one who belongs sitting on the throne would lay in an animal trough. You need to know that that first Christmas, the one who God said will reign forever seems to be a passing footnote in the story of the one who's reigning now, Caesar Augustus into a weary world of power plays and coups for control slid the one who was in control. And here's the thing. Did you know this first Christmas? Most of the world didn't even notice. <laughs> Christmas came into that weary world and it comes into our weary world much the same way. Would you agree with me that our world is weary? Would you agree? Just shake your head. I can see it. <laughs> yeah, your world's weary. Our world is weary. 
And sometimes we feel like pinballs and pawns with all the uh, geopolitical crisis and power plays that are going on in our world. We see it played out in the global stage, things like this. The North Korean leader launches 23 missiles, escalating tensions. Nuclear watchdogs say Iran is enriching uranium, raising the threat of nuclear war. Putin unleashes war on Ukraine. Three Israelis killed in occupied West Bank. China and the tensions with Taiwan. We see it in the political climate of our own country. Political ads that don't tell you what a candidate's for as much as who they hate and why you should vote against them. Assassination attempts on political figures, a loss of grace and decor among leaders, the greatest, the greatest, the greatest country in the world, which is what Rome would have been seen as. Now us, greatest country in the world, with what many would say is the best and most effective form of governing is experiencing some growing pains. Would you agree with me? And might I say, experiencing some weary disillusionment? But the truth be told, the truth be told, we're not just pawns in some game playing out on the political stage, on the global stage. Uh, we're weary because you and I, ready? Let's just admit it. Let's have a conversation. You and I, in our world, we love to be in control. You and I have this need to have power. Have you ever been around somebody who is a control freak? Raise your hand if you've ever been around. Raise your hand if you are one. Like you, you can spot it in someone else. I would say it's easier to spot in someone else than it is you. Uh, I remember a friend of mine, uh, when my wife and I were newly married, we became good friends with uh, this couple. They were dear, dear friends of ours. And they would have us over to their house every Thursday night. In fact, we were going to go plant a church with them uh, back on the East Coast. They had already had three kids. They were a little further along in life than us, and we'd go eat dinner with them. And we were going to go plant this church back there, 12-hour trip back to Philadelphia. And I remember one occasion, he and I were going to drive back. He was a big guy, about twice my size. And uh, he had this big car, kind of like a Lincoln Continental kind of car. And we're going to drive his car because he was kind of a guy who liked to be in control. And he knows this about himself. Never let me pay when we go out to eat. One of those guys. So we get in the car and his wife had given us food to eat on the way and he's going to drive. And I knew already because I'd already told and asked and I said, hey, I'll drive. And he says, no, I got it. He's going to drive the whole way. Why? He likes to be in control. I need to be in control. And I never forget, we're driving back. I'm just eating the food his wife gave. And eventually I look over, he didn't look so good. And I'm like, you all right? And he said, I'm fine. Kept driving. Eventually he pulls over the side of the road and he says, switch seats with me. I'm like, whoa. Never had he ever done this with me. I said, what's wrong? He said, I'm sick. He got over in the passenger side and I got in the driver's side, but he didn't want to waste any time. Just because he is sick, we're not going to sit still. He said, go. <laughs> we got to get there. I started driving. Next thing I look and I see... In the passenger side, all I see is his backside because he's literally hanging out the window, just vomiting all over Route 80. His vomit is all down the side of the car. He's sick as a dog. And he just, he'd stop everyone and say, keep going, don't stop. I'm like, man, you are nuts, you know? He got done doing what he was doing over there. And this is literally what he said. He says, pull the car over. I'm like, why? Pull the car over. It's his car. I pulled the car over. He said, switch sides with me. I went over to the side with the vomit all up and down the side of the car, right? Because he's going to drive. He wanted to be in control, right? 
You see, it's easy to spot in others. It's not easy to spot in us. <laughs> I just got done having back surgery, and some of you are aware of that. And for a couple of weeks, I wasn't able to drive. After my surgery, of course, I'm on a lot of drugs, and my wife drove me home. I don't really remember the drive home, if I'm honest. Uh, she informed me that I'm very happy when I'm drugged up, and I was very complimentary of her driving and uh, very happy to be a passenger in the car. But I can tell you, once those drugs wore off and she had to drive me around, I became very anxious. Why? I want it to be in control. You see, many of us, that's the way we live our life. We want to be in control. We want to have the power. We grow weary trying to protect our territory, our kingdom. We are committed to our individual rights more than we're committed to others' well-being many times. Uh, for a lot of us, we don't, any, we don't want anyone telling us what to do. We don't want anyone telling us how to run our life. We don't want anyone controlling our circumstances. Uh, we do everything we can to make sure our kids are not inconvenienced. We do things that we are not even aware of sometimes to control the people in our life, to try to control our future. And here's what we do. We deify, listen close, the leaders who agree with us and who advance our agenda, and in our particular time and cultural moment, we vilify leaders who don't. Why? We want the sense of control and power. And you know what? You know what? You might, for many of us, Christmas is not a thrill of hope as much as it's this convenient momentary distraction from our weary worlds. And at the end of all the festivities, when it ends in about a month, here's what happens. We don't rejoice, as the song says, in the thrill of hope. But you know what many of us will do? We'll return to hoping for a thrill. Yeah, here's the reason. The reason is this. We simply see Christmas as a simple story about a cute kid being born. But it's not. The story of Christmas, listen close, is nothing less than the announcement of the arrival of the king. A king who breaks into the world's drama and he breaks into our story. You will never experience the thrill of hope that Christmas brings into your weary world, into our weary world, until you see Christmas is not God manufacturing a cute Christmas story about a cuddly little baby with some shepherds and wise guys, but Christmas is when he sent on to the stage, the king, his king. And that kid who would grow up to be the king, that kid grew up in a modest carpenter's home. His childhood was relatively obscure. He became a rabbi, this miracle worker. Eventually they would kill him like a criminal. But I want you to hear what I'm getting ready to say. His story, which seemed like a footnote, in the global story that was playing out, his story became the story on which all other stories in history have become a footnote. And there's three things about his kingdom I want you to know, that Jesus is the king. And I want you to know this, that he's the king and he's advancing his kingdom right now the way it arrived then. You need to know that. He's advancing his kingdom the way it arrived. At Christmas, God sent the king quietly subversively, subtly, onto the stage, onto the drama playing out in the political scene 
Little did anyone know that born that night would be born the one whose story everyone else who ever lived would ultimately be a footnote in his story. The king came exactly how his kingdom is advancing now. That is so important. This is such an important point for you to hear. He is the king. And the way it came is the way it advances. It didn't come with shock and awe, but it came secretly with anonymity. He didn't come as a crusader, but he came as a kid. He came through this obscure couple. The kingdom of Jesus occupies every life of every single person who, like a child, hears believes and responds to the message of Jesus as their Savior and King. That's how the kingdom advances. When Jesus grew up, he taught about this in Matthew 13. And he said his kingdom doesn't come like a bulldozer, doesn't come like a wrecking ball, doesn't come like a crusader, but it comes like a seed being planted in the hearts of people who hear his message. And he said that the seed of his message lands on different kinds of soil. And there's different kinds of soil listening to me right now. He says sometimes it lands on hard soil. And for some of you, that's exactly your situation. You're cynical. You're like, I, I, can't, I can't swallow that stuff, that Jesus stuff. And, and it's the, the seed of the message of Jesus just lands and then nothing. But there's a lot of you that lands on rocky soil, he says. And that's soil that like you get emotional. And at Christmas, you really get into the story of Jesus and impulsive. And there's this sense to which you buy into this cultural brand of Christianity. But what happens is it's very shallow, superficial. When really what you want is not Jesus to be your king, but you want Jesus to bless your kingdom. And then he says there's a third soil, and that's, that's this, this thorny soil. And, and that's the, the, the idea of a preoccupied heart, where it's like, I don't want Jesus to be the king of my kingdom. I want Jesus to be added to my kingdom. Like, I want him to be a part of the already busy life that I'm running. And what he says is that when the seed of the message of the king lands on a heart like that, it begins to grow, but it's choked out by everything else in life. But he said there's a fourth soil, and that's good soil. Those who hear the message, they believe and respond. Ordinary people like you and I, inconsequential maybe human beings in the world's eyes who live devoted to Jesus as their king. And why is that important? Because the kingdom message of Jesus advances as lives surrendered to him as king are planted in the world beside people who don't know him. That's how it happens. And that's significant because Jesus is the king whose kingdom is different and it's distinct from all other kingdoms. Do you ever think about this? The Roman rulers of that first Christmas, they were men trying to be God. Jesus is God who became a man. The Roman rulers killed those who opposed them. Jesus is the one who forgave those who killed him. The Roman rulers taxed others to build their kingdom. Jesus paid the entire tax to bring us into his kingdom. The Roman rulers did everything they could do to gain power to control others. Jesus, who had all the power did everything to leverage all of his power to serve others. He is a different king. And because he is a different king, 
those who surrender their lives to Jesus as king begin to exhibit the same qualities. They don't try to change the world with shock and awe in a crusade like a wrecking ball. But they follow the king who is different and distinct from every other king. And you know what they do? Listen, listen. They forgive. In the first century, they were known for their radical forgiveness. They forgave each other, but it was so radical. Guess what? They forgave, ready? Even their enemies. They were known for the way they served. They served each other, but they did not just serve each other. They were so, so willing to serve others that they weren't preoccupied, listen, to their, with their own individual rights, but they were preoccupied with the needs of others. Such that a Roman em emperor in the year of 4 AD said this. During the great plague, he said, all of our pagan priests are abandoning our people, but these Christians... They serve not just their own people, but they serve ours with compassion. They were generous. They were ridiculously and extravagantly generous with their resources. Their lives begged a question because they had this indelible hope that could not be stolen. And you know why they had a hope? Because Jesus, they knew, was the king whose kingdom would outlast all other kingdoms. That his kingdom is advancing now, but it would be established forever. That's why people who recognize and respond to Jesus as king, they're unmoved in their hope. They're unshakable in their faith. They're unwavering in their devotion, no matter what is happening in the world. You see, the first Christmas looked inconsequential. It looked like a footnote in the main drama of the day. But as the pages of history would turn... It would be abundantly clear that every king who's ever ruled, every president who's ever sat in the White House, every governor or dictator who's ever lived would be a footnote in the story of the king who came the first Christmas. And God might have snuck onto the stage, that king might have snuck onto the stage of human history if it weren't for the story of those guys called the Magi. Do you remember them? <laughs> Yeah, their story's found in Matthew 2. Matthew 2. And here's what it says. It says this, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod. Now let's just stop there a second. Who was that guy, King Herod? Well, he was a man of unusual geopolitical talent. He was somebody who cozied up to the Roman powers that to be. But he also knew the power of public opinion. And so he embraced just enough of the Jewish customs so that he had the power of public opinion. He married a Jewish woman, but he was somebody that was very much driven by the need to be in control. He was the self-proclaimed king of the, what? Jews. He was so paranoid that anybody who threatened his kingdom, he killed. He killed his brother-in-law, he killed his sons, and eventually killed his wife. He was paranoid because that's what power-hungry people become. Paranoid that somebody's going to overpower them. So into his world, King Herod came magi from the east. Now let me bust your bubble. 
who are these guys? We three kings, right? That's what you're thinking. There probably weren't just three of them. We think of that because of the gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Uh, There's probably a whole band of them. They probably made quite a scene when they rode into town. They were intellectual men, maybe astrologers from the east, Persia. They weren't under Roman rule. Uh, you remember Daniel in the Old Testament? These would have been the, the band of people that he was put in charge of to teach the Hebrew Scriptures. And they came equipped with just enough knowledge of the Hebrew Scriptures to show up. And they created quite a ruckus riding into town while this paranoid, self-proclaimed king of the Jews sat on the throne. These guys from the east came and they said, where is the one who has been, look at this, born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and we have come to worship him. You see what it says next? When King Herod heard this, he was what? What's that? He was disturbed. And all Jerusalem with him. I bet he was. Usually when a king shows up and there's another king already on the throne, it's going to be disturbing. That's usually what happens. You know why? Because there can't be two kings. So Herod is disturbed. He's agitated. I would say this, this announcement the Magi made threatened him, freaking out because he was preoccupied with controlling and protecting his throne. He didn't want anybody else to take it, to throw it into jeopardy. When they said, where is he that is born king of the Jews? The word that he heard was this, where's the baby born king of the Jews? Which means we're looking for the king of the Jews and you ain't him. It would eventually lead to Herod killing a bunch of baby boys, if you know the story. It just reminds me, guys, that the story of Christmas is about a king who showed up. And we ain't him. You ain't him. I ain't him. Let's face it. Can we just face it? We love the story of Christmas, and we love the story of Christmas when we can manage it. And it's this cute little baby in a manger, cute, soft, cuddly We love once a year getting sentimental about the story of Christmas, but what we don't want is a Jesus who screws up our plans. A king? He might mess up my plans. I got things going on. For some of us, us, the message of Jesus is a threat, just like it was to Herod. We're busy building our kingdom. We're busy putting our career together, uh, climbing the ladder. We're busy kind of looking for our security. And we're paranoid of anything that might wreck it. And so the message of Jesus for some of us, just like it did Herod, threatens us because we're busy building our kingdom. What's interesting is the story goes on. It says, well, Herod called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law. These are the religious guys. These are the, the guys that if, if you're playing Bible Christmas trivia, you want them on your team. They knew all the answers. They knew all the answers so much that they knew exactly where in the Old Testament. He asked them where the Messiah was to be born. They went right to this obscure passage that many of us can't find. They're like Micah chapter 5, verse 2. They went right there in Bethlehem. For this is what the prophet has written. You, Bethlehem, the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. These guys were the religious guys in the the town, the theological minds, the Bible scholars. Yet here's what's interesting to me. These guys who knew the Bible backwards and forwards, 
They knew the answers. What's interesting to me is this. The wise men, outsiders, outsiders, traveled almost 900 miles to find the child of the prophecy. And these guys, who had the light of God's word, didn't travel five miles to see if this was the child of the Old Testament prophecy. They were so close, yet so far away. And the reason they were so far away is because they had created a religious system and it was their way to control. They, were, they felt pretty good about who they were. They didn't really need anybody to help them. They felt like they could achieve acceptable status in God's eyes. They were comfortable with a system to make themselves righteous. And they were way more comfortable with a system to make themselves righteous than they were with a Savior who would die and, and expose their unrighteousness. And for them, the Scriptures were simply a book of codes to keep instead of a light that would point them to Christ. Religion is a way for us to control. It's a way for us to control others. I'm doing better than you. Why don't you kind of get up to this code? And it's also a way for us to try to control God. Look at how good I've been, now you owe me. The story goes on. Herod called the Magi secretly, and he found out from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, and he said, Go, search carefully for the child. He acts really interested, right? As soon as you find him, report to me, so I too may go and worship him. Of course, if you know the story as it bears out, he had no intentions of doing that. He simply wanted to kill the king who threatened him. So after they heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they worshipped the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. They then opened gifts, their treasures, and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. These outsiders, bowing in surrender and worship, pouring out the extravagance of their gifts because you see that's what you do when you're in the presence of a king and having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod they returned to their own country by another route do you see the story Herod the one who proclaimed himself king of the Jews king of his territory was threatened by the announcement of the first Christmas the chief priests they were unmoved by it they simply ignored it because they had created a system that didn't need a king, savior, to enter it. These outsiders, these wise men, they recognized and responded to the king in worship. You see, at Christmas, I want you to hear me. A king came. Whatever you think about Christmas, it's not a story about a cute kid that we get sentimental about once a year. But at Christmas, a king came. And the secret to the thrill of hope and the secret of rejoicing in our weary world, in your weary world, is that Jesus is the King who came. And there's two things that I want you to write down as we end. First is this. I'll be weary living in this world until I recognize Jesus is the King. I'll be weary living in this world. You and I will be weary until I recognize Jesus is not he was the king, he is the king. He is the king who is king forever. The fact of the matter is, I'll be weary in this world because I'll worry, what in the world is this world coming to? I'll be weary in this world because every time the economy's good, I'll be good. Every time it goes low, I'll be a wreck. 
I'll be weary every time they say the stock market's gonna crash, every time gas prices go up, every time I hear the word recession, I'll be weary. I'll be weary in this world looking for a thrill of hope. I'll be chasing and hoping for a thrill. I'll do whatever I can and I'll even embrace cheap substitutes that overpromise and yet underdeliver. I'll grow weary in this world until I recognize that Jesus is the king and I'll get weary every four years hoping my candidate will deliver hope and the thrill of hope. We'll see ourselves simply as pawns in this geopolitical game and drama that's playing out. We'll live as though this world's all there is if we don't recognize that he's the king. If I don't recognize Jesus as the king, you know what I'll be tempted to do? I'll be tempted to vilify leaders who don't agree with me and deify those who do. And they'll become a form of God to me that can deliver the thrill of hope that only Jesus can. You see, he is the king. He is the king who came, which means he is the king who's coming. The first time he came to advance his kingdom, very much the way it arrived. The next time he comes to establish his kingdom, once and for all, new heaven, new earth. The first time he came subtly and subversively. The next time he'll come suddenly and ultimately. The first time he came to invite us. The next time he comes as judge and warrior. The first time he came, it led him to a cross for our sake. The next time he comes is to sit on a throne. You see, unless I realize that, I'll become weary. And in my weariness, I'll try to ignite change in our world. Even under the guise of being a Christian, I'll try to do that by being a wrecking ball, a bulldozer, a crusader, even using religion to control others. And I'll be weary. Some of you are weary. Jesus is the king. What's coming and what's going to happen? And Jesus is the king who came. He cuts in to the narrative our global drama, our national drama, he's the king. But he doesn't just come as the king of our world. He comes wanting to be the king of my world. And I'll be weary until I respond to Jesus as the king of my world. You see, King Jesus doesn't just show up on the global stage, but he shows up on your doorstep this morning, this evening, whenever you're watching this. He shows up. Christmas isn't a story just about a cute kid who showed up and it's like, that's really neat. A king showed up. That's the story of Christmas and he's showing up this moment at the doorstep of your heart and he's saying, I want to be king. For some of us, we're threatened by that because we don't want anybody to tell us what to do. We don't want anyone being in charge of us. We're threatened by King Jesus because we don't want anybody to tell us what to do with our money, our time, our priorities, our business, our plans, our sexuality. And yet if we're honest, you can't have two kings. And for many of us, the kingdom that we're protecting isn't going that well. And Jesus comes as king. There's others of us that maybe we can relate more with the religious people in the story because we hear the story and yet Somehow we know he's the king, but he's the king that's all too easy to ignore. And so what we do is we cozy up to religion because it's a way to control. We know all the answers. We're very religious. We're charter members. We bought the t-shirt. We have the icons. And yet it's a way to control others and ultimately control God. Look at all that I'm doing. Don't you owe me this? 
And it's easy to ignore that Jesus is the king who wants total control and surrender. He's the only one worthy of it. You see, here's the thing. The one that you ignore now, the king that you're ignoring now, you'll eventually kill. That's exactly what they did. Early in the morning, all the, does that sound familiar? Chief priests and elders of the people came to the decision to put Jesus to death. And what you'll do is you'll begin to create a religion void of the message and the power of Jesus and the cross and the gospel. The only secret to the thrill of hope is total surrender to the king. Because when a king shows up, there's only one response, and that's ultimate, complete, life-changing surrender. What does that look like? What does that look like in your life? It looks like a life that begs a question. Their life begged a question. I bow my life before the king who radically has forgiven me. So total surrender is I'm going to extend radical, radical forgiveness to others. I bow my life before the king who came and didn't demand his rights but leveraged his power for my sake and my needs. So bowing before him looks like this, an unusual life that leverages all its power for the needs of others. I'm going to bow my life before the king. He's the king. That first Christmas, the king showed up. He's the king who's advancing his kingdom right now. Some of you are hearing the message of that king, and for the first time, you want to say yes to that king. You can do that right there where you're at. Jesus, I believe you love me. and Today, I am surrendering my heart and my life to you as my Savior, my Lord, and my King. And his kingdom advances as lives bowed before him are planted all across our world. And they make a difference. And they beg a question that point to the king. To Jesus, help us to, like the wise men, bow our lives before you. The one the wise men came and worshipped. And that we would recognize you as the king. The king of our world, but king of our lives. And I pray our wives planted in this world would advance your kingdom. I pray this in Jesus' name.